everyone. This is Jim Robbins, and this is the Good and Noble Heart Podcast. And this is part three, the final part of the uh, mini-series that Drew Farley and I are doing on um, God Without Religion. And uh, this is new, the new book that Drew has out. Some of you may be familiar with it, probably by now. Others may have read his former book, um, The Naked Gospel. So... We left people last time, Drew, with sort of a question mark that I want to address this time. And the question is, if if our heart is no longer causing us to sin, in other words, it's not our nature to sin, we're not deceitfully wicked any longer because Christ has removed that old heart that was prone to wander and given us a new heart that is like his, well, if that's not what's going on, if it's not our heart, then what is going on? What causes a Christian in particular to sin? And in your book, there are kind of two co-conspirators that you outline for us, sin and the flesh. And I think there's a lot of confusion over both of those. So if we could kind of take one at a time and start with the flesh, um, if you wouldn't mind starting with that great metaphor that you use about um, it's like the segue from one presidency into another. Can you describe that for us? Yeah. Well, you know, Jim, every four years or maybe every eight years, we get a new person in office. And when we do that, that president, what he likes to do is essentially uh, fire the former administration, uh, the cabinet members, and then uh, he'll proceed to reverse a lot of the policies, a lot of the political policies that have been put in place. Uh, he may try to enact some laws, amend some others. Uh, in other words, change things uh, because he disagrees with the former administration. And, you know, I mean, that's that's what we're hearing from the scriptures is that there's a new president in town. There's a new man, a new creation, a new self. And yet, even though we're new, uh, there are old policies and procedures uh, that are still in place. Uh, there's old thinking. Um, as I also like to think of it, there's old programming. I mean, we've got we've got new spiritual hardware in our computer, the new hardware is that new heart, that noble heart that you uh, so amazingly talk about. I mean, good heart, noble heart, pure heart. Uh, that's the new spiritual hardware that we have. But uh, we have software updates. You know, you're on the web and you're working with something and suddenly uh, you get a notice on your computer and it says click here to update. And you have a choice at that point. You can click and update, or you can keep the old version, the old programming, the old software. And so uh, when the Bible talks about flesh, you know, it seems to be talking about old programming, old things, old ways, old procedures, old policies uh, that we can, number one, set our minds on, uh, and number two, walk by. And so we can walk by the flesh, we can set our minds on the flesh. Now, alternatively, we can walk by the Spirit or set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And so you see that our soul uh, is essentially like a mirror. It can reflect anything. Uh, it can reflect the flesh or it can reflect the Spirit. And our soul is where our mind is, so our mind can be set on one or the other. So, But what's happened, unfortunately, as you know very well, is that that word sarx in the Greek, uh, which means flesh, 
has for a couple of decades now been sitting in uh, the new international version of the Bible being translated as sinful nature. And so then a lot of Christians think, oh, I've got a sinful nature. My nature is sinful. I just naturally want to sin. And so then they think they have two natures, of course, the new nature that God gave them, praise God, praise Jesus, but then they turn right around and think that they have the old nature as well. And so the result is a schizophrenic Christianity uh, where we're believing that we are essentially two people with two sets of desires. And, you know, Jesus said a house divided won't stand. And, and so the bottom line of this flesh thing is that it's very important for us to see the flesh for what it is. Number one, the flesh is not us. You know, the flesh is not who we are, but the flesh is old programming, old ways to think, old ways to set our mind, old ways to walk. And, you know, we're just not made for that anymore. And understanding that makes all the difference. Mm. And I do like that um, analogy of the old programming where the, the former president or the former ruler of our nature, so to speak, is gone, but there's still some remnants of how that presidency operated. Um, and I think where some of the confusion comes in is that, you know, is the flesh my old nature rearing its ugly head again? Um, but it's not. It's it, the old nature is thoroughly gone, um, and so uh, and actually in the last few years I've actually revised my position on that. I, I kind of um, had the idea that well maybe maybe the old man is still around but lurking at the margins. It's dethroned but lurking at the margins. But the more I took a look at this, I think it's pretty clear that it's actually gone. Yeah. So, so it's not, you know, <laughs> you, you brought up that metaphor. Um, I keep putting myself up on the altar, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, but it keeps jumping off. But that's, that's a mis that's misleading as well. Yeah. You know, there's that weekend at Bernie's theology that I joke about. I mean, that we're, you know, if you've seen that film, basically there's a, a guy that the mafia kills and then two younger guys discover this dead body and they proceed throughout the weekend. They don't want to ruin their party life, and so they proceed throughout the weekend propping up this dead corpse named Bernie and pretending that he's still around. And then, of course, the mafia gets wind that Bernie is alive and that somehow he they didn't kill him. So then they, throughout the rest of the movie, proceed to try to kill him all over again, <laughs> even though he's already dead. And, you know, that's what we Christians are doing when we think that we need to try to die to self, we need to kill the old self, we need to get rid of ourselves so it can be all of God and none of us, you know. And the picture we're painting is that we're just these hideous, hideous creatures that need to get out of the way so that God can do his thing. And we we should act as hollow tubes, uh, so to speak. And, you know, the problem is with all that, that it doesn't take into account God has made us beautiful now. I mean, at the core, he has made us different. He's exchanged the old for the new. The old is truly gone, dead, buried, and gone, and we're compatible with Jesus. We don't have to get out of the way and consider ourselves ugly and awful and wicked. Uh, Instead, we can see that it's all of him and it's all of us together. It's a union. We're united with Christ, and that's a really big deal. 
Yeah, and you know, as as you alluded to last time, why would Christ enter into something that is filthy and despicable, yet leave it untouched and unchanged? Um, you know, how how could he how could that possibly even be compatible in the first place? And so many Christians, it's almost as if they believe Jesus is living inside them, but kind of beside an ugly. Mm. core, uh, you know, a a heart that still is prone to wander. Mm -hmm. Well, what kind of God would, you know, it would be like releasing a prisoner from his sentence. He's free to walk the streets now, but but you've never changed him on the inside. So it's a cruel thing now to set him onto the street where he's only going to repeat what got them in what got him into trouble in the first place yeah well that's the view many christians have is that well that's kind of how god's left it i'm i'm only forgiven but nothing really substantial has changed or i'm waiting for it to one day change mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit about how the flesh since we know it's not the old man the old man is gone how does a flesh disguise itself? Because most of us, when we think flesh, we think, uh, you know, that Galatians passage, immorality, jealousy, outbursts of anger, envy, disputes, all that kind of thing. That that we can get pretty clearly. But what are some other ways that the flesh um, masks itself? Yeah, you know, there are flavors of flesh. I mean, basically... From Galatians, we learn, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And so that flavor of flesh right there, that's trying to perfect you. It's not trying to make you look worse. It's not trying to get you involved in open sin where people will be able to think, accuse you of being sinful. Uh, Instead, uh, the flesh there is hoping for a better reputation a perfect reputation, a spiritual reputation, even, you know, an ultra-religious reputation. And so we have to see that, I mean, essentially the flesh is a realm of operating. It's a way of thinking, and it could result in ugly behavior, but it could also result in very sterling behavior, at least on the outside. And so it's really not about the result. It's not about what the behavior looks like. It's about the source. And, you know, operating according to the flesh happens anytime that any believer uh, is trying to meet a standard, you know, is under law of some type, trying to meet a standard, because that's what the law does. It excites human effort. The law begs us to perform. Uh, the law insists that we perform. Mm. And so, you know, people will say, well, how can I not live according to the flesh? I really don't want to live according to the flesh. What should I do? Well, you know, the scripture says very clearly, just get to know Jesus, walk by the spirit and you won't fulfill the desires of the flesh. Get free from law, get away from law, uh, hang on to Jesus plus nothing, get to know him, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And, and it, it's just an attitude. I mean, that's really what we're talking about here. Walking according to the flesh is an attitude, and the only way we can get away from that attitude is grace, realizing that we don't have to perform, we don't have to meet a standard, and there's a relationship that we're supposed to draw from. 
And I think that's a great point that the flesh you, – you've got this quote in your book that says the flesh also pushes us towards self-improvement and goal setting so that we can see how far we've come and feel good about our growth. Um, when I was speaking to a, a group of um, men one time, I was trying to explain this whole concept of, of the heart being new and that there isn't a – standard to me anymore. There's, there isn't this performance thing going on. And what he kept wanting to come back with was, but what about the spiritual disciplines? The first question we ask whenever we say, you know, um, well, it's, we no longer have to, um, you know, fight against the flesh or do something that, but that's our first question is, well, what do I do? Mm-hmm. To make this happen, do I pray more? Do I fast more? Do I give more time to the church? Yeah. And so that is such a place that can trip us up because what we do is we take it right back to behavior. Yeah. Well, you know, my take on that, honestly, candidly, is um, I don't see spiritual disciplines in the Bible. I, I know it's a popular Christian term. Uh, but essentially, I mean, when people talk about spiritual discipline, they're talking about, first of all, prayer. Well, the way that I look at prayer is imagine if I went to my father and said, you know, I haven't been talking to you enough, but I promise I'm going to discipline myself to talk to you. I am going to make myself talk to you. I am going to, you know, uh, regiment this and, and set aside time, and I, I'm pledging and promising to talk to you. Well, mm. at that point, I mean, that's just awkward and weird. He's my dad. Right. Uh, you know, what in the world is going on here to where I need to think of talking to dad as discipline? Um, you know, the term spiritual disciplines is not found anywhere in the scriptures. I mean, there is self-control, not self-discipline, but self-control, and it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not um, a self thing that you do to self. Uh, You know, you say, well, another spiritual discipline that people talk about, uh, reading the Bible. Well, again, if my dad writes me uh, letters about what he's done for me and how he loves me and how he cares for me, do I need to, you know, look at these letters as something that I have to read, thou shalt read or else? Uh, or do I do I change my attitude about it and just say, whoa, dad, wow, this is amazing what you've said you've done for me and done to me, done for me. Um, and, and you're spelling all this out. And then here you are trying to protect me, too, with regard to my behavior. I mean, you're trying to keep me away from the garbage in this world and, and, and you're looking out for me and the outcome of those things is death, but the fruit of your spirit is life and peace. And man, thank you for showing me this. And, you know, I think the Bible has gotten a bad reputation, honestly, mm. uh, from all of the spiritual discipline talk, because by the time you're 15, you've already heard dozens of times, you better be in your Bible, you better be in your Bible, and then you hit youth group, and then you hit college group, and by the time you're in your 30s, man, I mean, you've heard hundreds of times, you had better be in your Bible. And, you know, I don't, I just don't think that fosters the right attitude about the love letters that we have from our Heavenly Father. Um, and, and so the whole thing has just been skewed. Um, and, you know, again, it's 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 the term spiritual disciplines, I believe, can mislead people down a road of uh, measuring themselves, quantifying. You know, people say, well, when's the last time you have your quiet time? You know, well, 
I mean, I, I like a really, really loud time. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not very quiet. Uh, you know, it, there's personality things that factor into this. And when you, we try to legislate um, some sort of uh, study and relationship and prayer, when we legislate that for people and we set up a standard, it basically induces either self-discipline or guilt. Uh, and, and the guilt is from not doing it. And then the uh, people who are able to discipline self end up doing it to some degree. But I mean, I promise you, I, I've met with hundreds and hundreds of people over the years, and I can't tell you the number of people that have been through youth group and college ministries, and then they just beat themselves up once they graduate, hit real life, uh, get married, have kids, have a job. And then they just lose track of this, that, or the other, and they start feeling guilty about how they're not meeting the standard that their youth pastor told them to meet or whatever. We're fostering a culture of measuring, and we're fostering a culture of guilt. And all I'm saying is, is man, I want to know what daddy has to say to me. I want to know how he loves me and what he's done for me. And I want to talk to him, open up to him. He totally accepts me and loves me. Why wouldn't I want to talk to him? Why wouldn't I want to read letters from him? And see, when we can get that attitude, then the whole spiritual disciplines thing just sounds like the military, and it sounds so foreign and odd. I thoroughly agree with what you just outlined in terms of a, a better understanding of connecting with God, mm -hmm. because uh, otherwise what you have is you have it, it, God relating to God becomes about compliance. Yeah. It, it, it's not about connecting with my dad's heart. Yeah. You know, it's about compliance. And am I, am I measuring literally, can I check this list off of things that I'm supposed to be doing? And mm -hmm. I mean, there will be, there will be days and days when I, I don't crack open the Bible, yeah. you know, because I refuse to do it out of guilt. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't, I'm not a kind of a regimented person to begin with. I'm more the artistic, creative kind of guy. And, right. um, you know, the, even the idea of a quote, quiet time is, you know, makes me a little nauseous, quite frankly, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I just, I couldn't even do it if I wanted to do it. Uh -huh. um, so yeah, I'm right with you there in all of that. How, how connecting with God has gotten so distorted. Can I say something, uh, you know, about your ministry? I mean, so here, you're a perfect example. Uh, what you're telling me is that in some regards, you're artistic, you're, you like a fluid relationship that doesn't have uh, a set schedule. Uh, you probably relate to other people in the same way. Uh, and that's the way you relate to God. But now look at you. I mean, my goodness, you've you've written a book, you have a ministry, you're you're reaching out to people. You obviously have a deep respect for the Word of God. You study it, you know it, you teach it, um, and yet you don't fit into the mold of a daily quiet time at, from six to seven a.m. or whatever. And so, you know, you're not uncommon in that way. And that's all we're, we're saying here, you know, for the people out there listening. I mean, we both, our, whole, our ministries are centered on the Word of God, mm -hmm. and the Word of God is essential to everything that we say and do about Jesus. I mean, there is no other source uh, other than people's imagination. So we fall back on the Word of God in every way. Um, but, you know, 
I guess you and I, Jim, I mean, we're just pointing out that there is certainly a culture of measuring. Mm. You know, and I, and I think really, I've, I've been praying about God, what do you want my next book to look like? And what I think I want to do with the next book is to demonstrate how this culture of compliance that, that operates in a law-based mentality, not only how is that how that is operating throughout the church today, but how that operates in kids' schools, where mm-hmm. com- compliance is is tantamount um, to to um, education rather than transformation being the center of education. How so? How that's happening to your kids? How that happens in the workplace? I mean, this this law based measurement of performance and personal growth is operating at every level of our culture. And so what I want to do is is give people the framework so that they're not just seeing how it ha- how it operates with the gospel, how it operates in in perhaps their you know circles of church friends and things like that, but how it's operating literally in every area of their life. And what do you do about that? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to um, I want to press on to the second kind of co-conspirator. We've talked about the flesh, but then there's sin, uh, and sin is it's much more diabolical even than we've painted it. Because Paul Paul says, you know, there's that passage that everybody kind of on the other side that would argue against us loves to use. Uh, you know, Paul struggled with sin. The things I want to do, I end up not being able to do, and so on and so on. And gosh, isn't Paul just being so honest with us? And well, mm. yes, he is. But twice he says in that Romans 7 passage, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. So could you describe kind of with that rat in the house metaphor, what is sin and what is it? how is it operating in us? Yeah, you know, I'm sitting in a house here in Lubbock, Texas right now as I talk with you, and in this house, we've had uh, quite a time. We've had some interesting experiences. One of them was we came back from vacation, and there was no heat in the house, and so we went out to the furnace out in the garage area and opened the utility doors to look at the furnace, and they see- everything seemed okay. Then... Uh, looked behind the front panel of the furnace only to find uh, various tubes and wires were chewed to pieces uh, by some sort of animal that we later believed to be a rat. And there was thousands of dollars of of damage, replacement costs for parts and labor uh, in order to repair that furnace. And then uh, just after we got that fixed, then we had a bathtub uh, that was a, a hot tub jacuzzi style bath, and it had, um, you know, rubber hoses and stuff that were in the in the uh, floor. And this same animal, we believe, went up and chewed to pieces uh, that area as well. Mm. And so we ended up with thousands and thousands of dollars of damage from one little rat in our house. And you know, I tell that story in the book God Without Religion because I'm I'm basically saying, you know, that's that's what God's trying to show us is there's a rat in our house 
And, you know, I could have turned to my wife and said, hey, why'd you go into the furnace area and shred up all that stuff with a pocket knife? <laughs> you know, I could have accused her. I could have thought it was her. But apparently it was someone in our house that was not us. Uh, it was a parasite uh, infiltrating and uh, doing his thing that he does best. And so, you know, if we ever find that rat, I think I'm going to stuff him and mount him. <laughs> Because, uh, that's like a three thousand five hundred dollar rat, but, but uh, but you know that's exactly what sin is. Something is in us and not us, and you know we may end up having to pay the bill for a whole lot of the havoc that uh, that that rat wreaks in our lives. Uh, but we need to see that we're not the source of all that. Uh, those thoughts, those ideas, those actions—they don't originate with us. And yeah, you know, ultimately there's a choice, a biblical choice to not let sin reign in our lives. But, you know, I guess the point I'm making is that verse goes on. Don't let sin reign so that you obey its lusts. And we need to see that the lusts belong to it uh, and they're not our lusts. But I'm sure as you do, I mean, I know lots of men who run around thinking that they are lustful. Uh, that they are full of lust. Um, you know, they struggle with pornography and all kinds of things. Uh, and then they just, their view of themselves just goes down the tubes. They start to look at themselves as ugly and dirty and wicked. And, you know, one of the things that really ministers to people is, is that I've seen is just for a man who's in that situation to be able to read from God himself, hey, you know, you've got a parasite within you. Don't let sin reign so that you obey its lusts. And, you know, I've given you a new heart. I've given you a new mind. I've forgiven you. You are beautiful and loved. Uh, but there is a parasite. And watch out because that rat in your house, he, he will wreak havoc. But just know that you're not the source. And therefore, you can say no to the source and really, you're saying yes to who you are. And I think that's really helpful because you've got this, you got this quote that says, um, I can now see that I should judge a thought not by its volume, in other words, how loud it is, um, or its frequency, you know, how often I think that particular thought, but instead by its content. So no matter how persistent a thought is, I can recognize that it is simply that rat once again trying to cost me a fortune in damages. Mm -hmm. And that's so helpful to separate the voice of sin from our true heart and identity, that it's not us. Uh, even, I mean, and this is not a new idea. I mean, uh, I was going to say Paul Bunyan. Uh, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress has this section where Christian, who is the main character undergoing this transformation of grace, you know, I think he ends up in some kind of swamp or some really dark place on his journey. And literally, the, uh, the, the writer describes it as really almost like ghost-like personified, um, you know, characters behind him whispering wicked thoughts mm -hmm. and trying to convince him that it's him that's thinking those and wanting those things. Um, and it's not. So that is so helpful to separate. It's not me. And it, even when a person starts to think, okay, I, I think I can buy that, it is so hard to let that 
stand and trust that Mm -hmm. because the law has taught us you are responsible. Yeah. 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 And so basically, uh, you know, if if there's that standard, then I've got to meet it. And so then sin is actually excited, which is counterintuitive. We think that 10 laws or nine laws or a bunch of principles are going to thwart sin, uh, push sin down, keep sin from reigning. But, you know, God is saying apart from law, sin is dead. Uh, And, you know, under grace, sin is dead. Uh, And that's very, very counterintuitive. So we're invited to a strange place. I mean, we're invited to a trust that uh, with human logic may make no sense at all. Um, but when you when you enter into this spiritual realm in Christ, you're not only invited to Christ, but you're invited to freedom. And Christ operates in the midst of freedom, and that's the way he would have it. He would have us know our acceptance, know our forgiveness, know God's love, and then in the midst of all that freedom and grace, then he says, I'll take care of the rest. And it's weird, uh, but it's true, and we we really have to take the plunge to trust him. Mm. Well, Drew, this has been a great mini-series, and um, if people want to find more about your book, God Without Religion, uh, they can go to andrewfarley.org. And um, you've also got a a video podcast through iTunes that I think is really helpful as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But, Drew, thanks again, and... um, as always, it's been a really meaty and um, good conversation. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Jim. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.